0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Christ. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. From one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners To get back the same amount but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful this is the gospel of the lord praise to you lord christ as we remain standing let's pray But God, we thank you that you love your enemies, that you are merciful to those who do not deserve it, that you are kind and gracious to those who are ungrateful. Would you teach us to do and be the same this day for the honor and glory of your name? Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we entered the season of Epiphany. And we started a new series of sermons on Luke chapter 6 called Straight to the Heart. In this series, we're looking at one of Jesus' most well-known and provocative sermons, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. In this sermon, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. As we saw last week, he begins by pronouncing blessings and woes, upending everything that we think about what it means to be blessed. We think that being blessed means financial security, good food, easy laughter, and social standing. Jesus says, no, those who are truly blessed are those who live under his lordship as citizens of the kingdom of God, even as they endure poverty, hunger, weeping, and injustice in this life. How can this be? Well, it's because blessing has nothing to do with material wealth and stability. It has to do with our relationship to God. When we come under the lordship of Jesus, we experience God's blessing, even in the midst of suffering and trials. In this sermon, Jesus is preaching to a large crowd, a crowd made up of those who've chosen to follow him and some who are simply curious. They have come to be healed of disease or to be released from demonic oppression And they have received these things. They've seen the miracles that Jesus does. But there's more to following him than this. And Jesus wants them to know what they're signing up for. Our passage this morning morning begins in verse 27. You may want to turn there if you're able to. Luke chapter 6. It begins in verse 27 with the words, But I say to you, But I say to you, it's a phrase that could summarize the whole of Jesus' sermon. Throughout it, Jesus seems to be saying, Look, the world will tell you one thing, but I'm going to tell you something else. But I say to you, sets us up to be surprised, challenged, and ultimately transformed. And Jesus does not disappoint in verses 27 to 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Now we hear these words and we immediately assume that Jesus is exaggerating for effect. I mean, he can't possibly mean what he's saying. We tell ourselves that what he really wants at the end of the day is is for us to, to be nice to each other. He's just trying to motivate us, right? I can assure you that there is more to these words than that. They were meant to provoke They are intended to pierce our hearts, to convict of sin, and to point us to a way of life that we struggle even to imagine, much less live. But before we get to the heart of Jesus' commands, I do want to deal with some of the rebuttals that are banging around in your heads right now. Be assured of this. Jesus is not advocating for a theft economy. He is not defending bullies. His words do not undermine just war theory, nor can they be used to justify stealing from the rich. This is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not telling bad people to misbehave more. He's not addressing the Roman governor or some group of elected leaders and teaching them how to run the state. He's addressing individuals and their personal lives. Individuals like us, who have shown interest in following him. And he wants them to understand his expectations for how their conduct will change if they walk the road with him. By and large, these people, like most people throughout history, had been taught to love their neighbors but to hate their enemies. They'd been taught to treat others with suspicion, not generosity, to hold onto their stuff tightly, to strike back when hit, They had practiced an ethic of do to the other guy before he does to you, not as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. But here's Jesus telling them to love their enemies by treating them kindly, by speaking well of them and to them, by interceding for them before the throne of God. Now There are a few things to notice right off the bat about what Jesus has to say. First, Jesus expects his disciples to be different and to act differently. Yes, there is a sense of hyperbole to his words, but only because he means for us to take them seriously. Notice the contrast in verses 27 to 29. We are supposed to look different from the people around us. Just because our enemies are doing something to us doesn't mean that we can do it to them. In fact, we are to do the opposite. We are to be different and we are to act differently. And one of the primary ways we show that we are different is in how we treat those who treat us poorly and worse. Now, why does Jesus start here in his sermon? After the blessings and the woes, which serve as a kind of introduction, Jesus, he goes for the jugular by addressing one of the hardest aspects of Christian discipleship, which is how he wants us to react when we are treated like dirt. I think he starts here because he wants us to know the seriousness of the call to follow him. He also starts here, I think, because he wants us wondering how this works. He wants us to recognize the the upside down nature of his kingdom. To see that the logic of following him does not match up with the logic of the world. And he wants us to ask why. We're going to come back to that question in a little bit. Christianity is not merely a set of beliefs. It's a way of life. Jesus isn't a celebrity. He doesn't want fans or followers or groupies. He's Lord. He wants disciples who follow him and are changed. That's the first thing we notice. The second thing we notice is just how unsentimental Jesus is about love. He is fully aware of how nasty people can be. He acknowledges that we have enemies, people who do not like us and are out to hurt us. He understands the real threat of physical violence and loss of property. And still, he says, to love these people. The kind of love that Jesus advocates for is costly, it's painful, and it is decidedly unsentimental. Now, we, by contrast, we live in a culture that has completely sentimentalized love. I mean, think about this. We slap red heart emojis on text messages and call it love. For us, love is primarily understood as a feeling or as an emotion. For Jesus, it is a set of priorities and a sequence of actions. Love is self-control, not striking back. Love is sacrificial giving. Love is suffering I find Jesus's honesty so refreshing. He's never guilty of beating around the bush or of downplaying the cost of something. He doesn't bait and switch his would-be followers. He explains right up front that following him means becoming like him, which means loving our enemies, and that's going to be hard. But Jesus's lack of sentimentality, it's actually helpful in another way. It helps us see that in order to love our enemies, we don't have to fall in love with them. Jesus does not expect warm feelings to bubble up inside of us every time we get slapped in the face. Jesus isn't requiring an emotional response. He's urging us to action and to prayer. He wants us to act or sometimes not to act in a certain way toward our enemies to truly care about their welfare and to seek it. Love isn't sentiment, it's action. So these are the things that strike us immediately in verses 27 to 31. Jesus expects his disciples to change, which means we must be ready and willing to change, even if it's painful. And Jesus is unsentimental about love. For Jesus, love has much more to do with our actions than with our feelings. But how does this work in practice? What does this look like? If I were to ask you, who are your enemies? You might have a hard time answering. You know, some of us have obvious enemies, but many of us don't. We have friends, we have acquaintances, we have coworkers, people we like and people we avoid, but we don't really have enemies. And so when we hear this teaching, we don't really think it's for us. We kind of step back and assume, well, this is for other people. Now, for those of you who are in this camp, I want you to consider this. Most enemies don't start out as enemies. They start out as friends. We all have friends who have betrayed us or stabbed us in the back or lied about us to other people. You may not be able to name an enemy, but I'm sure you can think of a friend who has treated you poorly, turned their back on you. Those are the people that Jesus wants us to love. Twenty years ago, my father was deeply wronged by another man. He was lied to, manipulated, and ultimately stabbed in the back. Many of you know that my father was an Episcopal minister at this time, and it turns out that the man who betrayed him was his bishop, who had been a friend and a colleague for decades Though my father's congregation stuck together through this time, they were sued by the diocese, they lost the lawsuit, they lost most of their money and all of the church property, including the home that I had grown up in. I was living overseas at the time, and I had to watch from a distance as all that my father had built over 25 years in that church was taken away from him. And what I saw wasn't anger or resentment or outrage. I saw sorrow, calm, tenderness, and an unwavering trust in God. Now, my father was deeply hurt, he was astonished by the coarseness of his enemies. But because he had spent so much of his life following Jesus, his response wasn't to lash out in anger, but to look for ways to love. I have a photograph from this season that may be my favorite photo ever of my father. It was taken the day before he was required to hand over the keys to the church to the sheriff. In the photo, my father is wearing blue jeans and a baseball hat, and he is vacuuming his office so that it will be clean when he leaves. I found out later that the entire staff of the church was on hand that day, clean and scrubbing. And when they closed the doors behind them for the last time, my older sister left a plate of homemade cookies sitting on the receptionist's desk. About 18 months ago, the bishop who treated my father so poorly died. It was a hard death after a long and debilitating illness. I called my father and I asked him how he felt. His response shouldn't have surprised me, Honestly, son, he said, mostly I'm sad. I'm sad for him, for the choices he made, for the way he walked away from the Lord. I'm sorry for his suffering, and I have prayed for the Lord to have mercy on him. I was amazed. But as we talked, I began to understand my father had been praying for this man for decades. First as a friend then as an enemy, always praying. It's the last thing Jesus mentions in verse 28, but it's at the heart of learning to love our enemies. And here's why. One of the reasons we pray for our enemies is so that we can learn to see them as God sees them. We cannot simply turn on spiritual eyes and turn off our natural gaze when we're looking at them. It's just simply too hard. We must receive this kind of vision as a gift, which only God can give us as we come into his presence with them. When we pray for our enemies, we learn to see them as God sees them, as beloved, broken, needy children whom he loves and longs to redeem. But why does this matter so much? That's the question we're meant to be asking As I mentioned a few minutes ago, Jesus preaches with such force in Luke 6 because he wants us to recognize the upside-down nature of his kingdom and to wonder why it is the way it is. Well, he gives us a glimpse of the why in the second half of our passage, starting at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, it comes through loud and clear in these verses. There are obvious benefits to being loved, to being treated well, and to being paid back when you loan out money, right? But those are not the benefits that Jesus cares about. They are fleeting and ultimately pointless, The real reward is eternal and unchanging. It's adoption into the household of God as sons and daughters forever. That's the benefit that Jesus wants us to enjoy. That's why he wants us to love our enemies, but it's only part of the reason. Why are we to love our enemies? It's because God loves his enemies. Verse 35, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Here at the very end of this teaching, Jesus gives us the key to understanding. it. And who are God's enemies? All who rebel against him, who indulge in sin, who seek their glory instead of his. It's not just those who shake their fist at him, but those who ignore him, walk away from him, live apart from him. That's a pretty big group that encompasses pretty much all of humanity, indeed, every single one of us. The uncomfortable truth that's embedded in these words from Jesus is that we were once God's enemies. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Why do we love our enemies? It's because God loved us when we were his enemies. Take a look back at the the beginning of our passage and consider Jesus at the cross. He was struck on the cheek and then offered his back to be whipped and his head to be torn by thorns. He was robbed of his cloak and his tunic, stripped naked, mocked by the guards. And on the cross itself, what did he do? He prayed for his enemies saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Son of God, unequal, all-powerful, all-knowing, loved his enemies enough to bear the pain and the weakness and the humiliation of the cross in order to open the door to their forgiveness. And though we weren't there that day, we are among his enemies, as those who have rebelled against God and chosen our own way. But God is tender and merciful. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He loves us as his own. The only way we will ever learn to love our enemies is if we recognize that we were once enemies of God and that he chose to suffer for us and redeem us instead of punishing us. Now, if that's so, how can we not love our enemies? How can we not love our friends and even our family who turn on us and betray us? Perhaps the most surprising thing about this teaching isn't the fact that Jesus wants us to love our enemies, but the fact that it is actually possible when you have experienced the extravagant and undeserved love of God, it changes you. And you, by the power of the Spirit, become capable of things you never thought possible, including loving your enemies. Let's pray. Lord God, you know the hearts of each one of us here this morning. Some are struggling mightily with this teaching. Some are wondering exactly how it applies to them. Would you show us how to love and who to love? Would you lead us to action? Would you change our hearts? Would you draw us into prayer on behalf of those who hate us? And in all these things, may we know your unfailing love for us through Jesus Christ, who, while we were yet your enemies, died for us that we might live in you. We pray this in his holy name. Amen.